Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. So let's let me paint a scene for you. Say it's 1974, I'm 15 or 16 years old, and everyone's gone out for the night. And there I am, this slender, feminine creature with shoulder-length blonde hair, and I'm standing at a high window in my parents' haunted house, big, old, drafty, creepy house in what was once the country around Philadelphia. And I'm standing at a window and I'm looking down and I watch the taillights of my sister, who's the last person to leave the house. She drives off in the Volkswagen. Now I'm alone in this house and I'm looking at the clock. Let's say it's 6.30. So now I've got a couple of hours. So we sweep down the creaking steps from the third floor and I grab a dress and all the kind of body padding that I'm going to need and some pantyhose and uh, some makeup. And you put your clothes on quick and then you kind of stand before the mirror and you do your makeup and you look in the mirror and, you know, I mean, I was I was a very feminine looking person even when I wasn't on farm <laughs> and you know for all the world there's a relatively normal looking and I know normal is a charged word so maybe I should be careful but there I am if I'd left the house which I would never have done but I've left the house maybe you wouldn't have looked twice at me like there's some hippie girl you know and I'm just kind of looking in the mirror with the sense of both profound joy because there's the person that I am. There is the girl that has lived in my heart that I never get to see except when no one is home. But also profound sorrow because I know I can't be this person because I know I can't live in the world as myself. That's Jennifer Finney Boylan, writer, professor, trans activist, author most recently of Good Boy, My Life in Seven Dogs, as well as the classic memoir, She's Not There. Jenny's is a story of the deepest kind of secret, the kind that we hold in a wordless place, the kind that will not let go of us, the kind that will force its way out from its depths until we release it. And when we release it, it finally releases us. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. It's like I've got the nuclear codes here, and here it is. Here is the way, if I wanted to, I could blow up my life. All I'd have to do would be to walk outside, and I'm knowing that You know, my parents are coming back from their dinner with their friends. My sister might come back. Anything could happen. Maybe my friends are going to stop by without telling me. Are all the doors in the house locked? They might not be. And sometimes people would come home and I'd have to, you know, do a quick retreat. But on this particular night, let's just say, when all is said and done, I put everything back. Put the earrings back in my mother's jewelry box. Put the clothes back on the hangers where they're supposed to come from. Then I hear the car coming in in the driveway and my mother comes up the stairs 
And of course, I've, I've now washed off the makeup and I've done everything I have to do to look like myself again, as if, you know, nothing has happened. And mom comes in. Did you have a nice night, dear? Yeah. What did you do? Well, I watched the Carol Burnett show. Okay. We'll see you in the morning. And that was my reality. You know, that I've, I've had this just unbelievably powerful, both joyful and tragic experience alone in this creepy old house. And then everything would have to get restored, like nothing had happened to hide the scene of the crime. You know, and I'd wonder, was this dress facing this way or that way on the hanger? Will anyone know that I moved these earrings? Describe the landscape of your childhood. Well, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and it was a place where a single road had been carved through a pretty deep pine forest. And our family lived on one side of the road, and on the other side of the road were just lots and lots of trees that went on forever. And through that forest, it sounds very like, I don't know, Middle Earth or something, but through that forest, there was an old, I guess, a cobblestone road from a hundred years before and a lot of old stone houses that had been abandoned. And on some levels, it was like the coolest thing if you were a kid to be able to just, you know, get up in the morning and disappear into those woods. And sometimes I'd have the dog with me. We had a Dalmatian named Playboy, who was like the worst dog in the world, but, you know, not to me. And uh, so I would disappear into those woods. In some ways, it was very much a kind of a world of imagination. I was left on my own a lot as a kid, and there's a way, it's funny, there's the one way in which I look back on it and I think, wow, what a a kind of a sad childhood, you know, just kind of, because I spent most of my time kind of alone, wandering around this forest. But on the other hand, being alone is just how I liked it. It's the place I actually wanted to be. And if my parents or my sister had actually asked me to take part in their world, which was really different, different from mine, It would have been nice to have been asked, but then I probably would have given him the slip anyway. Were you and your sister close in age? Um, She's about a year and a couple months older than I am. So yeah, we were pretty close in age, but very different in temperament, you know. So I was a boy then, and and she was not. (laughs) She was a great equestrian. She rode horses. She was just brilliant at it, you know, as a kid. She became one of the best riders in all of Pennsylvania. And it was, you know, it's kind of like these stories you hear of people who have a sibling who is like a gymnast or an ice skater or, I don't know, (laughs) someone who has some kind of obscure athletic talent, you know. Like she was, what's that thing with the brooms in the Olympics? Curling, that's that. You throw this kettle and then people like go ice skating in front of it and they're like sweeping the ice. Well, it was like that. It was like being the sibling of uh, a world-class curler. <laughs> and uh, their lives revolved around that. From the time I was, you know, nine or so, the family would often disappear on the weekends uh, to go to, you know, horse shows where my sister would ride around in a ring. And um, meanwhile, I was out in the woods living in another world. My mother was an immigrant to this country. She um, was born in East Prussia, which is a country they don't have anymore. She uh, came to this country in the 20s, and 
Her English was not very good. She spoke German then, and she told a story of coming back from church, and uh, she didn't understand why did American pastors say that your head was going to run over? Why was your head running over? And it's like, what? He said, yeah, he said, my cup runneth over. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't speak German, <laughs> just most people, cup is the German word for head. So when she heard mein Kopf is running over, she was very confused. She was the second oldest of seven children. My grandmother, her mother, was essentially a single mother. My grandfather would show up every year or so, get her pregnant, and then disappear again. And they lived this kind of unbelievably hard life on what they called a dirt farm in New Jersey. And yet, my mother had this unbelievable faith and optimism and buoyancy. And it's always kind of amazed me that sometimes we think of people who are kind of cheerful and buoyant as people who are superficial and people who have no depth to them. And yet my mother, having experienced about the most shocking poverty and the the most shocking abuse from her um, father and other men in that farm town, responded to all of that with this kind of steely buoyancy. And when we were sarcastic teenagers, years and years later, decades later, the worst thing that anybody could call my mother was Glinda the Good Witch. That was that was their sarcastic name from my mother, because she very much had that thing, that Billy Burke thing. She was the Good Witch. My father was Irish. His father died young also, and his mother remarried each time, you know, a whole bunch of times, each time more disastrously than the one before. And eventually, by the time he was in high school, he was living with friends, in fact. So both of my parents grew up essentially with a single parent and raised by friends and or by themselves. And my mother had said she would never get married. She just thought there was too much evil from men. And uh, then she met my father. Uh, She was, I think, almost 40. She'd become a book buyer. She finally got out of New Jersey and invented a life for herself, what was then called a book buyer, back when books were sold on the first floor of department stores. She was the person who chose what books were for sale. And so she had this kind of glamorous publishing career in her 30s where she would take the take the train to New York City and have lunch with Bennett Surf. And she gave all that up when she was, I think, almost 40. My father was almost 30, but there was like 11 years apart from them. And so here's this German woman marrying this Irish intellectual even now, I still look at it and think, well, what a bizarre marriage. <laughs> but they just adored each other. Their names were Dick and Hildegard. I think that's probably important <laughs> to mention also. I remember as a teenager being a little stoned lying on the couch one day thinking, my parents are named Dick and Hildegard. Like, there's no hope for me. <laughs> like, my parents are Dick and Hildegard. Like, whoa, man. <laughs> <laughs> they had my sister and they had me. And we lived in the country, in um, Pennsylvania. My father had wanted to be a medieval historian, but you know there was no money for him to go to grad school, so he he became a banker. And uh, banking never, I think, quite treated him with the same love I think that medieval history would have. But he was the kind of quiet, quietly funny bookish man, and he loved his wife, he loved his kids, and he loved dogs. We had one terrible dog after another. So your father passed away when you were... 
26, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, he had he had melanoma. He first got it when I was in, uh, I think, ninth grade, and he had a mole taken off, and he was okay for six or seven years, and then he had another mole taken off, and then he was okay for three years or four years, and then, uh, and the last time he got it, you know, as the saying goes, they didn't get it all, and, uh, so he was in remission, I think, three times. And then when it finally laid him low, he was he was gone within a year. So yeah, I was in my 20s. Do you ever think about what it would have been like to come out to your father? Um, I guess I've thought about that. I, I think it would have gone badly. <laughs> so I don't think about it a lot. Um, he was an open-minded man, but he also had a very strong sense of the consequences of your decisions and if they affect other people. One of his best friends from high school, who was called my uncle so-and-so, you know, when I was a kid, that's, he was one of those people that you weren't related to that you called your uncle, um, divorced his wife and married someone else, midlife, the way people do. And my father never forgave him and never spoke to him again. Like, he was dead to him. Because he had four children, and he, my father just felt, you know, you've done, you've done the wrong thing. So he, he cut him off. I guess it's that fine line between having... The difference between morals and moralistic. Also, in their circle, that you know, they just didn't know gay people. They didn't know queer people. It was a very repressive culture. And um, I mean, they had a, two or three friends that were just obviously gay. You'd, you'd have to be completely blind not to know that these men were gay. And yet, nearly to her dying day, my mother would never would always say, "Oh, well, I hope Ed finds the right woman someday." I'm like, Mom. But, I, you know, I, thought, I guess that's just the culture that they grew up with in the 30s and 40s, you know. My life has not been easy, but it was a lot easier than it would have been if I'd grown up in that era. I know you've said that when you think about your childhood, you do think of it as a boyhood. Do you still feel that way? or The reason that I always tiptoe around that is because um, I'm aware that for other transgender women, they have a, a, a narrative which I respect and which is real. And the fact that my experience is a little different doesn't mean that theirs should not be respected. You know, there are a lot of transgender women who would say, I went through transition when I was 30, but I was always a woman. And I mean, and that's true for me also in a kind of spiritual way, in a kind of private way. But, you know, I I also, I lived in the world as a boy. I mean, I knew, I knew what the truth was about who I was from a very, very early age. But, I didn't tell anybody because I figured, I don't know, I didn't have the language for it. It just seemed insane. And there were, I just didn't know that there were other transgender people in the world. So I kept it private and I lived as far as the rest of the world could see as a boy. And I didn't go through transition until I was 40, you know. So I did live in that body for all those decades and was socialized male. That doesn't make me less of a woman now post-transition. And there's nothing to apologize for. But I do think of it as a boyhood. You know, not a boyhood like the other boys that I knew, (laughs) that's for sure. But, you know, it was what it was. And it wasn't the life that I wanted. And it wasn't a life that I understood. And it just felt weird, man. I mean, it it was a really strange way to be in the world. Because not only do you have the sense of yourself of being different and having a problem that you can't solve, but you also have a pretty big secret. You have a an atomic secret that you don't have a language for. You don't know how to, to share your what's in your heart, your most fundamental truth, with the people who love you. And it's a pretty hard thing for an eight-year-old 
to carry around on their shoulders. So my way of dealing with it was just to become this tremendously hysterical person. <laughs> you know, I was disruptive in school. I was, I was pretty funny at times. Some of my material was pretty good. But I also, I was just kind of driven to constantly be, be creating, you know, blarney hand over foot. You know, I would make up songs and I'd make up stories and I would go charging off into the woods and invent, you know, a whole other, other worlds that felt like a safer and more forgiving place to be than the world I lived in. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. It's so interesting, Jenny, because you're talking about in not having the language for something that is so huge, but literally just not having the words, not having the terms, not having access to being able to describe it, not just to other people, but to yourself. It strikes me listening to you that that's also the birth of a writer in a certain way. Because at least the way that I always think about the impulse to write is finding the words, finding the language, or intervening in the dynamics of loss or, or childhood where there wasn't the ability back then to, to speak. Yeah, and to, and to find a narrative of your own life that makes, that makes sense, that can actually change the chaos of your, the, the life that you're experiencing into something that has form and function and logic. It remains to this day a very difficult thing to explain to other people who don't feel the thing that you feel. And so because they don't feel the thing that you feel, they assume that what you feel must be something you don't feel or it must be something that, that is you're just crazy or just wrong. The experience of a lot of transgender people, you know, it reminds me of that, There's, I think it's a Henny Youngman joke where guy goes into the doctor and he says, doctor, doctor, I've, I get a terrible pain every time I go like this. What should I do? And the doctor says, don't go like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know and, and people will argue with you. They'll say that, well, your chromosome says you're this. So that's that. You should. <laughs> I've been tweeting with you for 30 seconds, but I understand your life better than you do. I think to some degree, there's also a, a desire to, to explain things to other people. And I think in my, my first memoir, um, She's Not There, which is a, a, an account of transition, there's a tone, and I mean, I wrote that book going on 20 years ago now, but there's a, there's a feeling to that book. Now when I read it, I feel a tone of, of apology or justification to it. Because, you know, in those days, you know, 20 years ago, there was so little um, discourse around trans identity that, you know, I think people felt like I'd, I'd made the whole thing up myself. So a lot of that book, the tone of it from author to reader is the tone of someone saying, please forgive me. I'm so sorry uh, for, for being myself and for feeling the things I felt. I hope you'll tough this out with me. And it's a thing, looking at it now, seems really, well, I don't want to say dated, but it's certainly, I wouldn't write anything about trans identity with that attitude now. Now I, my attitude would be much more like, well, I'm here on the planet. Isn't this great? Isn't this a gift? How lucky was I to experience 
the world in, in, in these different ways. And if you can't ride on this train with me, well, that's okay. We'll stop the train and we'll throw you off. What a difference 20 years makes. Well, I think it's just the result of people coming out. It's the result of more and more people being known. It's the result of there being more different kinds of transgender people in the public eye. I mean, it used to be that kind of nice, passable, middle-aged white ladies were the only transgender people you saw, except for drag queens who interacted with the world in a very, in a very different way. But, you know, now we've got all kinds of trans stories out there. We have a, a saying, um, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. And I'm not ignorant. I know that this is all still really new for a lot of people, and a lot of people are still catching up. But increasingly, and to our children's generation, um, this is this is just kind of the way things are. It's just not that big a deal. And in a way, that's the world I always wanted to live in, a world where I was boring. <laughs> Where it was just not that big a deal, and I could just be myself, and no one would have to have a heart attack about it. I've often thought that the change in my life was not a change about going from male to female. The thing that changed me was going from a person who had a secret to a person who doesn't have a secret. And if you have a secret, it is like having a St. Bernard it's something like an, an invisible St. Bernard that, that follows you everywhere. Like you can't leave the house unless the secret comes with you and the secret has to be tended. You know, I remember being in, in like a social situation when I was like 16 and somebody mentioning um, a transgender person, although that wasn't the language that was used back in, in those days. But someone would say that word and I would freeze and my heartbeat would triple and sweat would start to pour down the sides of my face because I knew that I then had to imitate a person for whom this topic was of no special interest. And sometimes it was very hard to remember what those people acted like. But it means you're also not telling the truth to the person that you love. By the person you love, Jenny's referring to her wife, Dee Dee. The two of them have been together, well, for a very long time. And what a ride it has been. I mean, so I've been married now for, what, 32 years, I think, now? Um, Dee Dee and I have been, been together. So it's 12 years as husband and wife and 20 years as wife and wife. Well, for the, the 12 years that I was married before I came out, my wife Dee Dee, whom I love, did not know because how did she not know? Because I didn't tell her. Why did I not tell her? Because I didn't tell myself, because I didn't want it to be true. Because I figured if I said this out loud, it would open a door to a life of marginality and suffering and violence and possibly murder. I mean, in the stories of transgender people that I knew, that's what happened to people. I didn't know there was a way of being in the world. So I had to keep the secret from myself, but it also meant keeping the secret from the person that I love. You know, the, the whole point of <laughs> being in love with someone and embarking upon the adventure of marriage and sharing a life together, it's pretty hard when you're trying to keep a secret from that person, but then you're also trying to keep that secret from yourself. It's crushing. And there are people, there are millions of people, and it's not just transgender people either. There are 
millions of people in the world who are bearing that secret and are bearing it every single day, who are bearing some secret, something that if they admit to themselves will atomize the world they live in or think that it will. And I think for men in particular, there's a sense that, at least the way I was, I was brought up, is that it is, it is your job to protect the people around you. And, you know, not, not just women, but, you know, especially women and children, if you have children, that it's your job to stand between the people you love and trouble. If there are arrows coming in, you want to be in a position that they're going to hit you and let the people that you love escape. So to be the person who's suddenly responsible for trouble, to be the person who's actually the fact of your life, the secret that you reveal, be the source of that trouble. It's just a very, very agonizing and terrible thing. And so again, for me, that was the big thing. It wasn't, it wasn't being trapped so much as it was having something that I hadn't been honest about to the person that I cared most about in the world. So what was the turning point for you after 12 years of what you're describing as a kind of knowing but not fully articulating to yourself that this was the case? There was a day, which I'll describe to you, but before that day, I mean, which was like a turning point, I would describe it more, though, as an erosion rather than than a decision. It wasn't like one day I said, you know, now I shall change my name to Tiffany Chenille. And and I, you know, and I I waltzed down the stairs in sequence. It wasn't like that. Although, actually, I know know people who've done that, too, and that's, you know, and that's fine. But, um, you know, you can think about it if you're walking along the road with a, a stone in your shoe, a little tiny little stone in your shoe, and you could probably walk a mile or so. In fact... Here's the story. We lived in Ireland in 1998-1999. Our kids were little. They were under the age of five or six. And I loved living in Cork. I had a job teaching at University College Cork. And one day we had some people over and the doorbell rang. And somebody turned quickly and a wine glass fell onto the floor. In fact, maybe the wine glass had fallen days before. But what I remember was that, that there was a tiny little shard of glass, like, you know, size of like just a tiny little sliver of a fingernail. Anyway, I must have stepped on that as I went to answer the door. So I got this little sliver of glass in the heel of my foot, which is so little that I probably didn't even recognize it at the time. And, uh, you know, a couple of days later, I remember thinking, oh, my foot kind of hurts. But, you know, I'll just keep walking because what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> and then a few days later went by and it got worse and worse and worse. And, I, you know, I walked all over that city because that's what you, when you know what you do when you live especially there. There was not a lot of driving cars. I walked everywhere. And slowly but surely, I realized that I was going to have to go to the hospital and have this thing taken out of my foot. Well, which I finally did. And I'll spare you the description of the hospital in Cork, Ireland in 1999, which was surprisingly the opposite of modern. (laughs) It was really gruesome. And uh, to get this thing out of my foot, they had to do an operation. And there was not good anesthetic, and it, it was really, really horrible. And finally, my wife picked me up in the car. <laughs> the end of the day, we went to go get, I guess there were some painkillers. So she went into the apothecary to get the painkillers. When she came out, she found me in the car, sobbing my brains out, sobbing harder than I think she maybe had ever seen me cry in 
a dozen years of marriage and knowing each other for 20 years before that. And it was clear to me what I was crying about wasn't the fact that I'd, I'd hurt my foot. What I was crying about is the fact that that was my life. I'd been walking year after year, day after day, with this little thing that I was carrying, that I was pretending didn't hurt, but it did hurt. And you, I mean, finally you just reach a day where you're like, I can't walk another step. We got back from Ireland and I started therapy the following autumn. So, you know, why then? The real question is why not years and years and years before? Why did it take so long? I don't know, because I was a coward. Because I was afraid. Um, I felt like I had too much to lose. You know, it's making me think of one of my favorite quotes is from the Gnostic Gospels, from the Gospel of St. Thomas, which goes, um, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. That's right. I remember that. St. Thomas. Mm. You're good, Danny Shapiro. <laughs> I mean, you make me think about the spiritual aspect of all this. I have become more faithful and spiritual, I think, post-transition, um, in part because I got to see the power of what love can do. Because when I did finally tell my wife, Dee Dee, it wasn't an easy passage, but in the end, she decided that she was going to stay with me, which I didn't know she would. And my children continued to love me. And in some ways, the thing that surprised me most was when I came out to my mother, who was, when I came out to her, she was in her early 80s, evangelical Christian, conservative Republican woman in uh, the Philadelphia suburbs. And, uh, you know, I had a pretty good feeling this was not going to be her idea of the, a good way to improve our <laughs> our relationship. But, you know, I told her and I said, I'm sorry I didn't tell you this when I was six years old, but I was afraid you wouldn't love me anymore. And, you know, right on, on cue, I started weeping. And then my little mother got out of her chair and she sat down next to me and she put her arms around me and she said, I would never turn my back on my child. She said, I'll always love you. And I said, yeah, okay, but when everyone finds out that I'm your daughter now, isn't that going to be embarrassing and a scandal? And she said, well, quite frankly, yes. <laughs> but she said, I will adjust. And she wiped the tears off my eyes and she said, love will prevail. And she quoted First Corinthians. These three remain, hope, faith, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Mm -hmm. And um, she died nine years ago at the age of 94. But uh, I still carry that around. Love will prevail. Because in my life, love has prevailed. And that's part of what I think has turned me toward having a faith again. We'll be right back. I've often thought of Jenny's life and what happened in the aftermath of her transition as really, at its core, being about the triumph of love, the human struggle to become ourselves 
and to trust that the people who love us will love us down to the core of our authentic being. Because isn't that what it's all about in the end? So now I'm 62 years old. (laughs) Now I'm generously, you could call me a middle-aged woman. (laughs) And the person that I dreamed of being, except older, is the person that I see in the mirror in the morning. And I don't even think about it. I mean, I don't even think about gender most of the time anymore. I get up, I have a cup of coffee, I read the paper, I write my column for the New York Times, which is usually not about transgender people. So the thing that was once the most profound, impossible thing in the world is now a thing that is, it's not gone, but it is receded. And in some ways, I'm living the life that I never thought was even remotely possible. And part of that is because I was very lucky. Part of it was because I was surrounded by people who chose when they were given the chance to love me rather than to run away. Three years ago, my older child came to me and told me that they too were trans and had already embarked upon transition. And I think back to when I told my mother and my mother told me that love will prevail and she put her arms around me. My reaction to my own child was, in fact, possibly less generous. I was freaked out. I thought, did I do this? Did I somehow make this look like it was fun? <laughs> and I was oddly, or maybe maybe not so oddly at all. I guess my first thought was just that my life has been really, really hard. And I don't want, I didn't want my child's life to be hard in the way that my life was hard. But then I hope not too much time later, I understood that that it wasn't about me (laughs) for once. And also that the world that my daughter is living in is different. And in part, can I say this in part because of some of the work that I had a hand in doing, in part because a lot of transgender people over the last 20 years have lived their lives out and without shame and have told the stories of their lives so that my daughter's generation lives in a world which is more forgiving and free. And when she came out, she didn't spend a year or two going around to everybody she knew apologizing and asking for forgiveness. She went on Facebook and said, well, I'm trans. This is my new name. And most of her friends were like, oh, good for you. (laughs) So that's what happened in in 20 years. It's astonishing and wonderful. I mean, I, my son is 21 and I see that in his world and his friends and for the last six, seven years since high school, you know, just a kind of very, very different way of thinking and being in the world and a lack of a need to put people in and people's identities and genders and um, sexualities and ways of identifying themselves into boxes. They just don't do it. Yeah, you know what I wonder, Danny? I wonder if I were 14 now, would I still be hiding myself? Would I still, you know, head off into the into the woods with the dog and kind of play the game I used to play, which was Girl Planet, 
which I, I would pretend that I was an astronaut who crashed on a alien planet where the atmosphere turned you into a girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Would I spend, you know, a Friday night hurriedly putting on, you know, my sister's hippie dress? <laughs> or would I be as cool as my children are and their friends are and, and say, yeah, sure, I'm trans, you know, whatever. I don't know. It might just be that I'm naturally, it seems weird to say a shy person for someone who is so constantly in the public eye, but um, I think I've always cared a lot about what other people think, which I know is stupid. You know, I've always sought for approval outside of myself, which is, I know, stupid. (laughs) Um, And I've always wanted to fit in, which is, I know, stupid. Well, I don't know. I think I would be different. But it's funny now to look back on all this because the world is a more, in some places, to some degree, a more forgiving place. But, you know, it happened, I mean, it happened because of the work that I was part of. But it also happened, you know, I don't want to sound too melancholy, but I, I, I think a little bit about that scene at the end of Lord of the Rings when Frodo is taking his leave of his friends and he says, we set out to save the Shire and the Shire has been saved but not for me. And he says, you know, there, sometimes the work you do, it's not work that's going to benefit you. It's going to benefit the people who come after you. And now I, I know I'm sounding lachrymose here. but No, actually, I, it, it makes me think back to what your mother quoted to you from the Corinthians. I'm a very lucky person, and I'm grateful for all the gifts I've been given. But... <laughs> A lot of the gifts I've been given felt like curses when I was younger. It is hard for me sometimes not to look at people who didn't get the gift of difference and think, it would have been easier, wouldn't it, to live another life? But on the other hand, then I would have been boring. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard to appreciate things you don't have to fight for, including happiness, including love, including the gift of your own soul. What's that old gospel song? You've got to walk that lonesome valley. You've got to walk it by yourself. So, I mean, that's what we do. We walk that lonesome valley. And, and yeah, sure, it's between, for my, in my case, it was, the, it was between the worlds of men and women, but it was also the valley of having a secret and being unknown and being known. It's the valley between having the self that you see be an absolutely amazing secret that is known only to you caught a glimpse in the mirror fleetingly for you know a few minutes once every few weeks and it being just the kind of quotidian fact of your life that you don't even think about you get up and you go downstairs and you have some coffee my mother held on to that haunted house until her 90s she died in that house actually Uh, she lived in it for 40 years and i remember long past transition. I had this funny experience where I went back the year before she died, and then I didn't know she was going to die, but she was 94 at the time. So I got a job teaching at a little college. They offered me a job to teach there for a semester, and I thought, well, okay. And so I took my leave. I got permission from my wife and my kids to live with mom for the fall semester and taught school at this little college called Ursinus College. And um, I'd come home and I'd make mom lamb chops for dinner, and we'd drink a gin and tonic, and then we'd watch Jeopardy 
<laughs> and it was like, after all those decades, all of the turmoil was done. It was just a mother and her daughter, you know, eating lamb chops. And I remember one night, there was a ghost that you would sometimes see on the third floor of that house. There was a mirror, and I know this sounds insane, but I wasn't the only one who saw it. <laughs> there was a mirror, and you'd see this kind of pale figure of this kind of older woman in a long white, like a nightie or something. She always be looking over your shoulder, and then you turn around and there'd be no one there. It was bad when you'd see her. It wouldn't happen a lot. You know, once a year, maybe once every couple of years, you'd see it. A friend of mine once saw her drift through the guest room in the middle of the night while he was asleep. But usually she was in the mirror. And I don't know what the story was with this person. I, later on, I hired actually like Ghostbusters to check it out. What are the paranormal investigators? They're like, well, you got something here. <laughs> we don't know what it is. And I should also say, I don't really believe in ghosts because, you know, kind of think it's bullshit. But um, I made my mother dinner. I cleaned up dinner. I went upstairs to my high school bedroom and I went to the bathroom. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw this figure in the mirror. And I thought to myself, holy shit, there she is again. After all these years, that ghost is still here. And then I turned around and of course, you can see where the story is going. It was just me. Now I was <laughs> the older woman in the nighty. You know, and I kind of wondered, was that the ghost that I was seeing when I was a kid? Was it the ghost of the person that I eventually turned out to be? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Can you be your own guardian angel? Can you look back over the years? Maybe when I was a kid and living this arcane private life, something in me knew or hoped that there was a possible world someday in which I would be solid, you know, that I would be opaque in the world rather than just this kind of fleeting specter. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Beth Ann Macaluso is the executive producer. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Tyler Klang and Tristan McNeil. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at facebook.com slash familysecretspod and Twitter at famsecretspod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.